Interview number 116, Antonio Hasha, Accessing the Language of the Body in Storytelling. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. And I am so glad that you have made it here with us that you have taken the time, that you are willing to go the distance, and that you are willing to explore, to find, to love the art of storytelling. For that is what we do on this show. We examine every aspect, every facet of the art of storytelling, and we take that that coal from the from the from the mines, and we polish it, and we squeeze it, and we work on it until it shines as bright as any diamond. Today I'm with Antonio Hosha, and we are going to talk about the art of using your body in storytelling. And I am really excited about having this conversation. I've actually heard a lot. I've actually never seen Antonio perform till last night, and it was an amazing performance to behold. And I've heard a lot, and I've seen his name mentioned on the national circuit, and it's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to finally meet him. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to share um, the little I know about body language and um, how to use your body on stage on a um, broadcast. And um, so I'll try to be very eloquent with my words so people can have a picture of what the body (laughs) does because... Because of the nature of the show, but uh, nonetheless, this is great. Uh, thank you. So, in- Antonio, let me tell you a little about him. Antonio Hasha is a native of Brazil. Began his career in the performing arts in 1985. In 1988, he received a Partners of the America grant to come to the United States to perform and deepen his mime skills with Master Tony Montanio. Since then, he has earned a theater BA from the University of Southern Maine, and studied with Master Marcel Marseille. Mr. Hasha's unique solo shows of Stories in Mind have been performed from Singapore to Hawaii and many places in between, including ten countries on five continents. Some of the venues include the Singapore Festival of the Arts, Arab International Dance Festival, the National Storytelling Festival, the Kennedy Center, the Smithsonian Institution, the National Geographic Festival, the Tales of Graz in Austria, Dunai Festival in Holland, and as well as many other storytelling festivals and educational institutions around the United States. Mr. Hasha is a member of the Maine Arts Commission, the New England Foundation for the Arts, and the National Storytelling Association. Antonio, I understand you're going to share one of your stories from a CD project. Yes, I do. I have a story. I'd love to share it, and uh, it goes like this. The Rock. Once there was a very large rock that lived on the top of a very high mountain. The mountain was so high that the rock was above the clouds and rarely could see the world below. This rock had been left there many years past by an old ice called Glacier. The rock felt very lonely up there. There is not much around. The clouds didn't talk to it because they were always resting whenever they stopped by. The mountain was too busy with the world below the clouds. There was also the sun, but it was so far away. The wind? Well, it was just too loud and always in a hurry whenever it came by. This rock was really alone and sad. The rock had a wish, though. It wished to go to the world beneath the clouds, because on the rare days that it was not cloudy, the rock could see a lot going on down there. It could see the farmlands, houses, rivers, streams, trees, the grassy coast below, and the sea. The rock really wanted to move down there, but it was stuck. As you know, 
rocks don't move by themselves until one day the earth shook. It shook so hard that everything moved around, and so did the rock. The rock started to roll downhill. Oh my goodness! Thought the rock, "This is my chance. I'm going down this mountain. I love this." Well, the rock got a bit dizzy with the rolling around, but it was kind of fun though. So it rolled and rolled over streams, through farmlands, on roads, over fences, until it stopped on the grassy coast below. The rock got very tired from the rolling around, and it slept for a long time. Then, it was awakened by an old sound—the sound of the waves. The voice of the sea. The sea had many stories to tell. There were tales of adventures, storms, long sea voyages, stories about the fish, dolphins, sharks, whales, mermaids, sunken ships, and treasures. The rock enjoyed the stories so much; they were really interesting. There are also people along the grassy coast who love to climb rock, so they could sunbathe, fish. And dive off of it into the deep blue sea. They were interesting to watch. These people, thought Rock. The Rock loved life by the sea. It was never boring or lonely. The years went by, and the kids that once came to play and climb rock were now being brought by their own kids. There are also ticklish creatures living on the part of rock that was under the sea. They were sort of green and with colorful animals that opened and closed. The rock also had noticed that it was much smaller now, but it didn't know why. So the sea explained to rock that the reason why it had gotten smaller was called erosion, one of the sea's many ways. And one day. Erosion was going to get the rock small enough; it would be completely covered by the sea during the high tide and part covered during the low tide. Wow! Thought Rock. When that time came, he was Rock's happiest. For during the low tide, he could see mountain, the gulls, people would still come and visit it. Then, during the high tide, Rock was all covered by her friend the sea, and completely surrounded by fish, seals, crabs, and seaweeds. Then Rock thought to itself, "When I was big, I felt very lonely up there on top of mountain. Now I'm not so big anymore, but look, I have friends for life." So. The sea kept on telling stories and changing rock along the years. There are rocks that had even become the sand you play on the beach today. Next time you go to the shore, try and listen to the tales of the sea. Ah, and you might see rock as well. <laughs> All right. And what CD was that from? This is a CD that I recorded.、Um, A while ago, it's called Crossroads, and the, the CD it's no longer in production because I'm going to DVD mode now. So、um, yeah, the CD is no longer available. So is this an, an ongoing issue for、um, a lot of physical storytellers in terms of you want to use a medium that really expresses the whole art form? Exactly. I want people to have, in my case, because I use. Body language to the extent that I use.、Uh, this is when I first recorded the tape, which became the CD. People said, "I want to see you. I don't want to just listen to you. I want to see the thing, the story."
And I'm like, <laughs> as a joke, I would say, well, buy my, buy the CD so I'll have money to produce a DVD <laughs> if you want to see it. Um, so I've, I've had two DVDs produced and I'm in the works of, of the third one. And the last one called Under African Skies is, uh, DVD. Uh, actually, I have two DVDs and, uh, a third one coming. The last one called Under African Skies got Parents' Choice Gold Award in 2008. And it features African stories, a, a mind piece that does not relate to Africa, but it's a bonus feature. And it has 10 minutes of mime instruction geared to storytellers. It's a nice album. It's over an hour long. And you get a, a full experience, not just with stories, but also footage of, of my experience in Africa when I went to Africa four years ago. In translating your stories into the DVD experience, in terms of recording, are you? Is it incredibly important to have more than one camera angle? Do you do you find you have to change your stories a lot to get them onto DVD successfully as a physical storyteller? No, I don't find it. I have to change a lot. I just have to be aware of the camera. I use the camera as another member of the audience. So sometimes I'll be looking around the camera and sometimes I'll be making eye contact directly with the lens. Uh, in, in the case of this DVD, Other African Skies, I shot the story uh, in front of an audience of fifth graders and uh, to get uh, their reaction to the stories. And then for the sake of uh, shooting it with more intimacy, I then performed the same stories just for the camera. Uh, so it was shot twice once in front of an audience, once without the audience, and then, and again, once without the audience, a second time to get different angles for different cutting uh, possibilities. Yeah. So a lot of your stories are really, well, first of all, that's a brilliant concept that I've actually never heard of before, which is maybe I live in a small world, but, but that this idea that you could take a story, you could perform it for an audience for a DVD, then you could record it separately for close-ups or different angles, and then combine all that together. Exactly. That's a brilliant idea. And I, I assumed you're using the track from the first yeah. to get the audience participation. Exactly. It's not necessarily a track, but, you know, if, you, if you're consistent with the telling, you can get the audience can blend in, come in and out, as if they were there in the studio with you. So, of course, um, the, the, the shooting in front of the audience, most of the camera work was on the audience, not on me. And then the shooting in the studio, mainly on me, of course, so you could blend that with the audience reaction, etc. And it was shot, um, every story I did about three times to get different angles and which is better than having a multitude of cameras on you. And it, because the more you do it, the more things come, you know, to surface and details and ideas. And so let's make the case for using body language with storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, there are some storytellers who don't use any body language. And why maybe they're set in their ways. But a beginning storyteller who may be making choices about their style or, or a developing storyteller, um, why do you believe body language is so important in storytelling? The body language is key in storytelling. Um, I don't think, I think it's beyond importance. It's just a matter of fact. You, when you get on stage, there is the body language already. Um, you cannot be on stage without it. It's part of our daily living is the body language. It speaks for over 70% of how we communicate. And this is not my own concept. This is research that has been done. People believe in the body language more than they believe in what you're saying. So if you say, I love you, and your body language it doesn't fit the phrase, I love you, uh, then you, you're getting that there's some kind of an issue going on there. Um, same thing as somebody who is very shy and says, I'm very brave and I'm very courageous. And you're looking at a very introspective, very shy, you know, toes turned in and shoulders <laughs> hunched. And the person says, I'm very brave. And the body language is saying, no, I'm very shy. You believe in, <laughs> in the body language. There's no way that the body language will be less powerful than the verbal language. What happens on stage is that, 
a lot of storytellers go onto the stage not aware of their body language. That doesn't mean that you have to move all the time. For example, you can have you can be a storyteller. You know, there are masters out there who go before an audience and they stand behind the microphones, the microphone stand, and they're using their body language, and and uh, in very precise and minute. Uh, ways that are very effective. So when I say body language, I'm not saying you you got to be doing cartwheels and and somersaults on stage uh, necessarily. There are people who do cartwheels and somersaults, and it should fit the story. So that's the key element in body language: is is your body language fitting what you're saying, and how far do you take it without making it overwhelming, without making it become the centerpiece of the story. I think that the finesse is blending the body language to a point that you know it's there, and but you're not necessarily 100% aware of it. It's almost like um, being in, in, in the park. Let's say you walk in the woods. You, you know you're in the woods, but you're not 100% aware of all that is in the woods. But all that's in the woods make what the woods is all about. You know, all the elements of the forest makes the forest. But you don't need to be 100% aware as an observer, as a person who is experiencing the forest, of all those elements. Because that makes the whole. The body language is there. And it's, I think it's vital for any performer to be aware of it. Again, as I said... A lot of people misunderstand when I say body language. They go, oh, I got I to gotta do stuff. Big things. It's not about being big. It's about being eloquent. Eloquent. If you're not aware of your body language at all, your body language might be contradicting what you're telling. And the audience will sense that contradiction. They might not know it in an intellectual way, but they will know it in a guttural way. And that's, I think, it's the leap is the quantum leap between syncing yourself with the story and and not. You know, it's the quantum leap in between, you know, from a novice to a seasoned performer. If you watch people who have been telling stories for decades, they have developed a sense of self uh, to the extent that everything syncs. Even though they might have their arms crossed and they're standing still, it, that's not going against the story at that particular moment. That's that's what I teach my workshops is creating awareness. You know, what is it that you're telling and how can your body support that? You know, it could be minute eye movement, where you look, where you don't look, how you stand. You know, why are you holding your hand that way during that moment? What's the picture that you're painting with your body? The minute you walk on stage, your body language is communicating something. Even before you say once upon a time, even before you say your name, the body language is there and the audience is watching you. That's why it's not good, for example, to step on stage already telling. Because the audience is not ready to listen. Somebody introduces you and you jump on stage already telling, uh, you, you're putting yourself ahead of the audience. It's nice to always take the space so that the audience has a time, has the time to digest the visual aspect of your presence. And then you start the story. It's like that blank page on the book. You know, when you open the book, it's not, the story doesn't start right there behind the cover of the book. You know, it, 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 there's a design. There is a there is a way into the story. There's the title of the book again. You know, there's the title on the cover. You open it. There's the title again. And then you open it. There's a blank page. And then there's a little thing about the book. There's a little thing about the author. So it, cuts, it starts to warm you up towards the story. And then and then when you flip that other page, uh, there might be the title again. Um, so. Uh, I, I use the print, the printing book, a, a lot as an uh, as, as as an, an analogy, because it creates space. How do you create space? How are you 
comfortable with the pause. You know, people think they have to talk all the time on stage. But no. You know, let the audience enjoy that visual. Because storytelling is about creating images in people's minds. People listen and those sounds are turned into images. So trust that you're creating beautiful images in people's mind and, and, and pause. They're called eloquent pauses. So here I am talking about body language and I'm saying be comfortable with pausing. <laughs> but the pause has to have impact. You're not just like hanging there waiting for the bus to come. You are sustaining, you are supporting an image you just created. So if there is a bird flying away, and you say all of a sudden this beautiful bird came and little Johnny, for lack of a better, <laughs> little Johnny watched it fly away. And you, and you watch the bird fly away as if the bird is there in, in, with you, and you watch it go away. And trust that by watching it going away, and maybe your left hand goes up to, to follow it. As you paint that picture with, with, you know, you're not saying anything anymore. And the audience is going there with you. They're following that bird. And you're giving them time to create that image. Now, the body language, uh, um, the, the body has different parts. There are different parts of your body that represent different things. And the more you study about body language, you are aware of it. For example, the hands. The hands are the mirror of your mind. Uh, uh, there was a man who lived in the 1800s in, in, in France called um, Delsart. And Delsart, he, he observed people, and he came up. He, this is not his invention. This is something that we already do. He just discovered by observing. By the way, observation is the number one um, homework for every performer. Uh, you have to observe the world around you because what you're doing on stage is you're telling about the world, whether it's a fictitious story, whether it's a true story from your family. You are recreating part of the world we live in on stage. And even if it's a fictional world, it's based on a real thing. So with that said, Del Sartre, he observed people and... And uh, he noticed that the feet and the hands mirror your mind. So usually the body language of your hand will reflect what you're saying. So when you say, come over here, you know, so you motion with your hand, that's a reflection of your mind. You know, go away. You might move your hand across the air, pushing the air away. Um, if you start to roll your thumb around around themselves or tap that's that that's that that's a sign of 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 anxiety a sign of un unsettling it's an unsettling feeling that you you carry in it's like tapping your foot it's a sign of impatience you know when you tap your foot you're like okay what's next you know you hide your hands you you're kind of shutting your mind you know so if you put if you make fists out of your hands that's a closed mind. That's a closed mind. If, you're, if your palms are showing, it means acceptance. It means that your mind is open. And you, um, so all these minute things, they psychologically impact the listener. Okay, if you stand on stage with your hands in fists, that means something very powerful and at the same time closed. You know, if you hold your hands behind your back, you're, you're completely absent mind-wise so it, it's it's very difficult to watch somebody uh carry on a story hiding their hands behind their back because it's it's like part of you it's not there uh especially when your hands reflect your mind and um for example the the chest is 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 the the whole torso is the emotional part of of your body language you know uh, the emotional center um and you know so if you have a concave chest 
You know, if you, you can experience this right now, um, listening to this uh, broadcast, you, you know, you just sink your chest in and you and be with that posture of, of a chest that's sunk in and you feel the, the, the emotional luggage, the emotional baggage that it brings as opposed to pushing your chest forward um, it kind of gives you a psychological uh, 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 courage it's like I'm ready I'm, I'm gonna take the, I'm gonna take the step as opposed to oh I'm falling back so uh, so those things are interesting to be aware of when you're on stage um, because uh, for example right now try this as you're listening get your hand and put it on top of your head and say, oh, no. You know, just put the hand on the top of your head and go, oh, no. Okay? Now, use the same tone, use the same intensity of, oh, no, and place your hand on your chin and go, oh, no. Which one gives you more hope? And which one is, is more desperate? When you put your hand on your head... Or when you put your hand on your chin, which one do you feel like uh, a sense of uh, of uh, hopelessness? Uh, you 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 have no way to go. You know. Um, oh no! When you put your hand on your head, it's like <laughs> you really have no way to go here. You're like you really lost, right? But if you put your hand on your chin and you go, oh no. There's a little bit more hope there, body language-wise. And if you put your hands on your eyes and you say, oh, no, there's a bit more of a emotional impact to the oh, no. Okay? And it's like, so if you put your hands over your eyes and you go, oh, no, I lost my keys, that, that's like, it, it, there's an emotional impact by covering your eyes it better be not your car keys because it's too much emotional impact there. <laughs> but it's like, okay, oh no, I lost my car keys, and you're like, you don't know where they are, and you have to go to a meeting, and uh, you know, so it's like maybe you lost your car keys, and you're going to somebody's funeral. So maybe then you go, oh no, and you put your hands on your on your eyes. Why? Why? Because the jaw is physical. It gives you hope. You're gonna figure something out. Okay, the eyes are emotional, so you have an emotional luggage, emotional impact uh, when you cover your eyes, and you, and and the, the head is the mental, meaning you're really lost when you block your head with your hand, for example, and you go, oh no, it gives you no way to go. Okay, now as another exercise to give you hope, if the if the story gives hope to the character now put your hand on your head and slowly travel it down to your chin it means you're going towards a solution if you put your hand on your chin and it slowly travels to the top of your head it's not giving you any solution at all <laughs> um, so you try those things and and guess what the audience knows that in their gut in the audience the, the audience knows that in their gut in their gut it's not intellectual why do they know this in their gut, because that's what we do. That's what we've been doing. This is no new science. It's just, uh, uh, it's just what we do. And 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 why do we know this? Because people who go on stage have observed. You see, going back to that homework, people have observed what works and what doesn't work, and how can I fit. You know, how can I make what works body language-wise to that moment in the story? Because the body language is the truth. At any given time, whatever your body language is in at that moment is reflecting your mental state. And there's no way to escape it. Unless you become an expert on body language and you're in a fool, so you might be... Well, you don't even have to become an expert. You might be having a terrible day and people come and say, how are you doing? And you go, I'm doing great. So 
is your body language showing that you're doing great or is it just your voice? If it's just your voice, you're not doing great. <laughs> I know you're not doing great. <laughs> so if you become aware of your body language, you can, you can not trick people, but you can be aware of it and use to your advantage on stage. Hi, this is Lynn Ford from Columbus, Ohio. I'm standing at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and you are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. One of the discussions that happens in storytelling is when does storytelling become acting, and when is it still storytelling? Is there a place where, I think there are some people who view it as that story, that, that, Storytellers who are too much in character are no longer telling a story. What would you say to that? Well, the issue about acting and not acting is, in my humble opinion, goes as like this. There are story, there, there is the type of storytelling that is more theatrical in essence. For example, storytelling requires eye contact with the audience. Okay? So, the, the, the eye contact in, in theatrical terminology, there's a fourth wall. Okay? So a fourth wall is that wall between the audience and the performer. When you go to the theater, you have three walls. They're already there in existence. And then there's an invisible one called the fourth wall. That's how we theater people relate to it. So in theater, actors are supposed to keep that fourth wall up. So if you are acting a scene in a play and you make eye contact with the audience, you are breaking the illusion of the play. Okay? Uh, unless you are a chorus, unless you are a narrator of, like, uh, you know, um, for example, Shakespeare has choruses like Greek theater and Shakespeare sometimes have a narrator that, that relates to the audience. And, and there are some characters that are allowed to link the audience to the world of the play. But uh, like farce, for example, you know, usually you make eye contact, you bring the audience in like that. But in a, in a general rule, if you make eye contact with the audience while you are discussing something, you're creating, uh, uh, you're breaking the illusion or you're creating something else. So what's the purpose of the scene? In storytelling, making eye contact is one of the great characteristics of storytelling. Um, so if you are carrying on a story without making eye contact, it's almost like you're delivering a monologue. So th th those are like techniques that differentiate storytelling more from a theatrical presentation. So let's say you have... A story that has two characters or many characters and they interact. I believe that you're still doing storytelling if you play the characters and they talk to each other on stage. And then when it's time to narrate the story, you make eye contact with the audience. It is still storytelling. You're telling the story and, and to the audience when it's time to tell the story and the audience is witnessing the scenes when you're playing one character against the other. I do that quite a bit, and that is, in my opinion, and the opinion of many other professional storytellers, storytelling. But, but there's nothing wrong with you not doing that. You can narrate everything. And um, I, I'm, a, I'm of the opinion that if you're using your body language and you changing the tone of your voice, that you should get rid of he said, she said, they said, the dragon said, and the princess replied. This whole thing about he said, she said, is if you are not doing anything with your body language. So you need to say who said what and when. You're not doing tone. Your tone is the same. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about monotone, but right now, during this interview, I'm using my... Antonio voice, let's put it that way, right? So, so you're saying that someone who uses body language, uses tone, and in, in particular character voices, um, that, that the, one of the big advantages of that is you no longer need to use the narration break to describe who's speaking. You can actually have characters go from one character to the other without having a narrator in between saying, and then the dragon said, and then exactly. the... Exactly. Uh, 
why is it there? Why is it? And the dragon said, and she said, and the princess replied, because when you're reading a book, you, you, you don't have their voices. Okay? The, the author has, is guiding you so that you know who is saying what and when. That's the author way of guiding the reader. But when you're on stage with the body language and changing your tone, to say who is saying that is almost not trusting that the audience is intelligent enough to know what is going on. Okay? So if I've established in the beginning the voice of a boy and the voice of a giant. Mm. Oh, I smell the blood of an Englishman, for example. And I go, and the giant said... <laughs> It's like, hello, <laughs> that's definitely the giant, not the boy. <laughs> so that's, that it becomes the performance, the, the storytelling performance becomes more dynamic. So let's talk about how we get to that dynamic point of view. Okay. How, how, do, how does someone who does, has no experience or very little experience with using their body in storytelling, how does that person develop a character or the ability to be in character? with their body mm -hmm. well there are classes you take <laughs> um, well, let's say this person is in China or India and there may be classes like in mime there yeah. but what are some basic concepts that you would get across about? I, I would I would I would suggest every storyteller should take an acting class um, because acting uh, a, a body language you know uh, workshop uh, you don't need to take acting in terms of text interpretation. But I'm talking about if you're on stage and you're using your body, it's nice. You know, it's like, you know, if you're going to drive a car, you, you, you should know how to drive a car, you know, and not do it because you kind of have seen cars around for so many years. You kind of know how it works. But you should know the rules of the road, you know, how fast you should go here and when you put your blinker on, that kind of stuff. So that translates into storytelling. If you're going to stand in front of an audience, you need to know the difference between standing in front of 10 people or standing in front of 1,000 people. You cannot tell the story, the same story that you tell in front of 10 people, in front of 1,000 people, because it's not going to translate to the person who's sitting in the back of the... Okay, I, I, have to, I can't pass that by, okay? So there are a lot of people listening who go, wait, no, wait, wait, wait. What sort of story do you tell to a thousand people, and what sort of story do you tell to ten people? In your opinion, what is the, the difference? Same story. Well, how do you how do you change the story based on the larger audience? It, well, you you change your body language when you project into a thousand people. You 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 can't have the intimacy in your body language that you have when you're sitting in your living room telling the story to five people. You you. Everybody listening to this knows this already. You, 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 you know that, that you, if you're in the living room telling a story to five people, you can't do that in front of a thousand people because 995 people are not going to get the story. <laughs> you know, they're going to have to watch it with binoculars. You know, you, you, you have to amplify yourself, not exaggerate. Be careful. I'm not saying exaggeration. I'm talking about amplification. So define that a little bit. Amplification is, exaggeration is, what's the difference between the two? Well, exaggeration is when you make a big deal out of nothing. That's an exaggeration. Okay? Um, so what is the, you have to be a good listener in order to be a good storyteller. What is the story asking you at that given time? Okay? If the girl screamed a blood-curling scream when she saw the vampire, and you do a little scream if you're going to do a little if you're going to do the scream at all you don't have to do the scream at all but if you're going to say you know what is the scene asking you to do right so um how are you going to when you move your hand how 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 far are you going to move your arm in front of a thousand people as opposed to five people um so it, it's hard to translate it over uh, without having the visual. But when you're standing up uh, in front of a larger crowd, your, your body is kind of embracing that crowd. So you've got to make eye contact to the fellow way in the back, the guy in the front row, 
side to side. Just by doing that, you're already opening that fan, right? You're opening yourself up, you know. You have to project more, you know. If you're making a facial expression, I mean, and you want the person in the background to see it, it's not that you're going to exaggerate your facial expression. It's just that you have to give more life to it. Uh, and um, maybe you're going to hold it a little bit longer, and maybe it will feel a little unnatural, but guess what? It's not going to look unnatural to the audience uh, if you are being true to it. Uh, it's going to, you know, like when I was studying theater, they, they, they say, you know, you cannot use your lips and your tongue when you're on stage to create the words and the sounds of the words in a way that you use your lips and your jaw and your tongue when you're having a conversation one on one you know um, it, so the, the way you gesticulate your your uh, palate and your jaw and your lips to create the sounds may feel a little unnatural when you're on stage um you know, you're gonna hit those consonants. You're gonna hit those, those vowels, and 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 you may feel like you're doing more than you should. And yes, yes, you are doing more than you should, but it's not looking that way from the audience point of view because they're not there next to you on stage. So stage work is definitely different than. I mean, I guess it kind of feels obvious, but sometimes I see people not seeing that. That stage work is very different than. Um, than up close and, and personal. Yeah, yeah. I want to I want to spend a little bit of energy and time because we've been we're burning through time and you have so much to share. On when when I saw your showcase, um, we already talked about this before we started recording this interview. When I saw your showcase, I really liked how you settled into characters and how you used sound to indicate a character or how you used how you combine the body with the... You know, at one point in the in the story, you were a lizard, and you had the tongue action going on, and you, know, you could yeah, see yeah. lizard on the tree. And then at and Chicken, you had your these cheek vibrations going on, which I'm going to go home and spend weeks trying to get the cheeks to do that. <laughs> um, and and then with with uh, Crocodile, you had this uh, water motion, which was which I'm definitely also going to steal. That some story is going to come out of me. That water <laughs> motion. I'm like, that was so beautiful. And watching that, uh, in watching how you indicated the character change by going back to those beginning little vibrations before the character would speak. Right. And so I just want to talk, I want you to share more about how you develop these characters or how you view the use of character on stage using your body. Uh, definitely folktales. You know, folktales have a lot of animals uh, using language verbal language and you know they all speak english <laughs> uh the animals and um and they're interesting characters to play so i i tend to play the characters i tend to get into them you know um and being a mime first and foremost has taught me to feel comfortable with that and i do it in a way that it's it goes in with the story uh so and i use my voice and uh, it becomes a, a more dynamic. The, um, the sound of the uh, crocodile, you know, so the, they see the crocodile first. And <clears throat> he's a very, you know, has a deep voice. <clears throat> Who is uh, splashing in my neighborhood? And But where is the crocodile? He's in water. So in water, it's not firm ground. So he is floating. He, he, the crocodile doesn't sit still. In the water, the crocodile might be still, but the water is moving the crocodile. You understand? There are minute movement in the water that will move that crocodile up and down. Now, Antonio actually has his hand in the air, and he's actually moving his hand as as a wave when he was talking a moment ago. Yeah. So, so, so what happens is when you look at a crocodile, now when you observe the crocodile in the wild, what do you see from the crocodile? You see the eyes, right? The eyes of the crocodile are designed on the top of the head so that the crocodile can surface and the eyes come out first so they can see the environment, right? So the eyes of the crocodile are on the top of the head 
not in front, like our eyes are. They're on the top. So if you're a crocodile-like animal, our eyes would be where your hair is on your head, right? So, so when I do the crocodile, I have my arms, my forearms, creating the water, and the eyes are just above it. And it creates that suspensefulness that the story requires. You know, the crocodile is about to eat the chicken. So, <laughs> and, and I make sounds, the crocodile's, you know, sound. So when I, the crocodile comes back again and again in the story. So when the crocodile is coming, I repeat the sound and the audience goes, oh, here comes the crocodile. Uh, you know, uh, before the crocodile says anything, they go, ooh. And movies do that all the time. It's called the L cut. You know, the, you, you hear the, you know, you're in a land of dinosaurs, for example, and you hear heavy footing. You're not going to think it's a pigeon walking around the woods. You know, you're going to go, whoa, my goodness, you know, there's a dinosaur coming. So, so movies use that, you know, they use that also in transitions. Uh, you know, you might be, uh, you know, for example, you might see it. But you also did that with your body before you the character spoke. Oh, the whole you, thing is yeah. committed. Yeah, so the you, commitment is is a hundred percent. Yeah, in my in my way of telling. You see, there's no like right recipe in telling a story. You might tell a story sitting down with drums. It's it's great, you know. Um, Baba Jamal, he he sits and he drums, but he his face is lit up. His body, he leans forward, he leans back. He does this with his shoulder. I mean, he's using his body language, uh, and he's completely aware of it. But he's sitting down the whole time. His his interview, um, I can't remember the number right now, but Baba Jamal did an interview on the responsibility of storytelling Mm -hmm. as storytellers and how we can use it for for good in the world. For good in the world, yeah, that's right. I, I sign under that. Go for, go for it. If you're gonna be in front of a crowd, you better be. You gotta be a, a forwarding humanity <laughs> in a way. You know, you know, especially in in the times we live. You know. uh, this is Rafe Martin, author and storyteller, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. So you're a native of Brazil. Yes, I am. Born and and born. I'm not of native blood like the Indians. You know, the the. But you were born. You were. I was born and raised in Brazil. Right. Right. Um, do you return there and tour there at all? I've toured there, um, but in the Are past. Are you a Portuguese speaker? Yes, follow Portuguese. Um, I lived in Brazil for 22 years. I go every year, pretty much, to visit family. My mother is still. In Brazil, and um, and I just got back last week actually from visiting her, and um, and I've performed in Brazil before. But I'm, did I did I finish that? Doesn't doesn't make sense what I was talking about body language, right? Um, just take classes, invest in yourself as a storyteller. Don't go, oh, I, I, everybody can tell a story. True, everybody can tell a story. But there is a, when you go on stage and you're pre- performing in front of people, you see how I use the term performing. You're, it, when you're on stage, you, you, there are techniques that will uh, uh, make your story jump into a whole different realm if you're aware of those techniques. You know, it's like, for example, you know, there's a saying there, if you can talk, you can sing, which is true. But if you're going to sing professionally, shouldn't you take voice lessons? Shouldn't you take singing lessons? You know, it's like, if, if I, if, if, if I want to record an, a singing album, <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to take voice lessons. You know, it's like, if you have legs, you can run. True. But don't you want to learn how to run better so you can run for a long time? You don't, you know, you're not gonna like hurt your feet. You're not gonna hurt your back. You know, so you take lessons. Uh, so don't don't be defensive and say, oh, I don't need to know these things. You know, a story can tell itself. That's one of the most erroneous things I've heard in the communities. Is that a story can tell itself? If a story could tell itself, there wouldn't be any storytellers. You just go to the tent, you go to the theater, 
and you wait for the story to show up. You're going to be there a long time. <laughs> stories don't tell themselves. People tell stories. Okay? And when people tell stories, do you want people to listen to the story and remember the story? Or you want people to go into dreamland while they're listening to you and think about what they have to do next day, what they have to cook for dinner. You know, so bottom line is you need to engage the audience. And you don't need to be doing anything big and outrageous on stage in order to engage the audience. But there are minute things that one should be aware of um, that will make that engagement come much easier, much more effortlessly than if you're not aware of it. You know, and, uh, and your body language is there. Whether you want it or not, when you go in front of a crowd, your body language is there. And it's already communicating something to the audience. So becoming aware of it will enhance how you fit the body language to what you're saying. And, uh, and um, so that's, that's kind of what this is all about. Right. Invest in your art. Invest in your art and, and, um, and be aware of the world you live in. How does a tree move in the wind? Observe it. Even if you're not going to do a tree on stage, it's nice to have that visual in your mind. When you're saying a hurricane came through a village, how are things moving when you say that? You know, you know it was a cool breeze in a summer day. How are the trees moving in a cool breeze? What is moving in a tree in a breeze? Pretty much just the leaves. What is moving in a tree when it's windy? The leaves and the branches. What is moving in the tree in a hurricane? The whole tree is moving. <laughs> so it's like, you know, what are the degrees? What what is in your head when you're telling the story? You know, are you there? Do you have a visual? Because if you don't have a visual, you can't expect the audience to have one. And what's in your mind comes through in your body. And this is not me saying it. This is, this is proven, researched, published, and, uh, and explored in, in, in whatever it's in your head comes through your body. Watch people. Go, when you're, whenever you're late... Whenever your flight is late, instead of being grumpy about being late, you can't do anything about it, right? I mean, you, you can't make an airplane and, and fly it at, at that given moment. So whenever you get to the airport and the flight is late, sit down and watch the people. Watch the people and see, and you'll know what they're thinking most of the time. Not details of what they're thinking, but you know the overall message <laughs> um, when you watch people. And even when the flight is not late, you should watch people all the time. Watch people. Watch animals. How does a squirrel move? Why, the, why is the squirrel moving that way? Why does the chipmunk move that way? How about the bear? How about the lion? Does it have to do with the, where they are in, in the food chain? You know, it's like a mouse. It's paranoid all the time because it might be killed at any given moment. Because at the bottom of the food chain, a lion can hang out and sleep in the open. A mouse cannot afford to sleep out in the open <laughs> because it will become food very fast. So that concept gives the mouse a certain behavior, you see, cause and effect. The lion, I'm on the top of the food chain. I can sleep anywhere I want. I'm not going to get bothered, you know. Uh, so it's like observe how life works all the time from uh, a, what is a tumbleweed, you know, how the tumbleweed rolls across the desert to how an eagle fly flies in the sky, you know. And, uh, so when you get on stage, you will change the way you tell. Your body language will will be affected by it. And there are classes you can take. I teach workshops across the country. 
Um, I'm, uh, I teach workshops in festivals. Uh, uh, what is your website? My website is www.storyinmotion. How about that? <laughs> one word, three words in one word. Story in I N motion. M O T I O N dot com. And for those who don't know, I perform in festivals, museums. I mean, maybe Brother Wolf should be seeing that. <laughs> I don't like to sell myself. <laughs> I don't know many artists to do. <laughs> um, I just want to go back to Brazil for a moment because I'm looking oh, for yes. news of Brazil. Uh, we have to we were kind of wrap up here, but um, is there a storytelling scene in Brazil? Uh, yes, more so now than a few years ago. Yeah, there are things happening, symposiums and um, I think a couple of festivals. Um, it is not as prominent in terms of festival and events as it is here in the United States. Um, but um, there are events in Sao Paulo, there are events in Rio and in other cities in the country, um, conferences. Not in the scale that it's here and in Europe. Uh, I think that in some cultures, uh, like African culture and, and South American culture, uh, storytelling is part of a, a, it. It's a daily ritual in a way, and um, I think that that it is uh, a ritual that we are lacking in, for example, here in the United States. Uh, um, people don't sit around and tell stories at home. Some homes don't even have tables. People don't sit and eat together anymore. Um, there's not that sense of bonding. It's lacking. So I, I have a humble opinion. <clears throat> I might be 100% wrong, but I do believe I'm a little bit right. That the reason why storytelling is so powerful here in the United States, uh, powerful, I mean, it's, you know, there are over 50 festivals countrywide and events going on everywhere people want to listen people want to have that sense of community and people find themselves being too busy and um and it's nice to go and identify yourself with a story so 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 i think one of the reasons storytelling the storytelling movement in the united states is so huge is because there's a lack for it in people's lives at home People are seeking the human connection more and more. Um, so that's why you, when you go to, to, to countries where storytelling is part of a daily life, people go, what? Why do you mean storytelling festival? People go to, to a place to listen to stories? <laughs> we listen to stories all the time here. That's why it's becoming more and more powerful. I, I believe the, the more technological we become, the more detached. And people say, no, it's the opposite. You know, I mean, look at that. You can type... No, but but we become dis- detached from the real. From the real, yes, the 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 eye to eye connection, you know. So here's a good moment to remind any listeners who aren't regular listeners that I have a um, an e-course called the Zen of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps, and if you go to artofstorytellingshow.com/slash/storytelling, you can sign up for that e-course. It's it's an electronic e-course, I know. But it basically contains a lot of the concepts that Antonio has been talking about in terms of how you present a story from a stage or personally and how you can really use. It's not really like um, a one, two, three guide. It's more like, you know, these are key concepts you need in your storytelling. So that's artofstorytellingshow.com slash storytelling. I want to interject something about technology here. I don't want people to think that technology is bad. I think technology is, is a good thing in many different ways. You know, it's like somebody gets hurt and they have much better chances of surviving today because of technology. You know, somebody gets, you know, trapped under, un, under a building. Uh, you know, it, there's technology that will lift the, the, you know, that part of the building and save you much faster than if you do by hand. What I'm saying is we, we, we need to be careful not to get lost into it. You know, t- you know, airplane is a great technological thing because, you know, you, if you want to go and tell a story, <laughs> it's not going to take six months to get there. You fly there and you're there in a couple hours. So, so technology has its goods, and, but be aware that it doesn't become a trap. Be aware that we humans have to realize that we are 
a part of nature. Okay, uh, we're nature beings, uh, uh, and 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 this whole dominance thing on nature, it's it's not doing us any good. But I think that the only way for us to go forward as a species is uh, it's to tell more stories, uh, because storytelling is the shortest distance between two people. And when you tell stories and you listen to people's stories, you you become less afraid, you become more knowledgeable, and be aware that you are nature. You know, you you um, you know this whole thing that we're here to dominate nature has not done us any good. And you can look at history. You know, this is not something that I'm saying. This is something history is teaching us. And in my humble humble opinion, the only way for us to go forward in in a sane way is to become more nature oriented um and uh and I think storytelling is is doing a lot of that it storytelling settles people it, it has the power to settle you more into your bones into what your existence is truly all about and um I feel very honored to be here uh at, at this program and to be sharing a little bit of my mind. And for those who who agree with what I said, great. And for those who disagree, great too. And let me know why you disagree. You know, you know where my website is, and I will not be offended if you send me an email and say, I disagree with what you said about this, 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 and that. And then we can dissect that further because, you know, when you're being interviewed, you, you sometimes get carried away and you might say something, but you're thinking another. I'm open to dialogue, both positive and negative, because it's not negative. It's a chance to grow, right? What is, in terms of the body, in terms of our subject today, what are some final final words you'd like to leave the international storytelling community with in terms of the use of the body in storytelling? One word, awareness. Two words, observation. Awareness comes from observing something. Right? So you become aware of something because you got in touch with it, you observed it. So, you know, if you, if you have a chance to take a body language workshop, go for it. Um, if you don't, watch how people move. Watch how people move when they are saying something. You know, um, great actors, they're great instructors. You watch a movie with, uh, Anthony Hopkins, for example. I mean, the man has a different body language for each character he plays. He, he, he's completely aware of, 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 of the character's body. I think he's one of the greatest mimes, <laughs> Anthony Hopkins. And you might go, what? A movie actor, a mime? I mean, watch him play the different characters. You know, Hannibal, Zorro, you know, uh, uh, and uh, Quincy Adams in Amistad. Uh, Watching him, how his body language changes, uh, uh, as opposed to a, an actor who always has the same body language for all the characters he plays. Right? So be aware. Be aware. Um, storytelling is about awareness. Big chunk of it is being aware of your world. Because as I said before, that's what you're doing on stage. You're bringing the world onto the stage. Whether it's a world of fiction or a world of... Or the real thing. I feel like today we've really talked about how not making a choice is still a choice. And that that sort of has been present throughout this entire conversation. That when you choose to not develop your awareness of your body, you are making a choice, even if you think you're choosing not to do anything. Well, 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 well said. Yeah. And, and the other part of what you just said is that, is that, and this is something I talk a lot about in this program, is that um, our relationship with the nature world is a choice. And I think a lot of people think that we already talked about this, but we haven't at all, actually. That, you know, I'm, um, I'm actually a wilderness educator. I teach kids how to survive in the, you know, I, I teach survival skills to kids. And I believe that our relationship with the nature world, the natural world, is one of the defining things of our lives. And that's kind of sad in some way, because Many people have no relationship with the natural world in today's world. And many people have no relationship 
Because the most natural thing you possess, and that's what I hear in this conversation, the most natural thing that you possess, and, and Antonio, you really possess it, is your body. Yeah. You know, we are exactly. we're animals, and, and you want to talk about nature, well, you're walking around, you're in it. You yeah. know, your, your body is nature. Yeah, exactly. And, and so to deny your body is to deny nature. nature. It is. And, and I see many Americans, and I... And I don't want to put down any storytellers in particular, but I see many Americans who are in complete denial that they're inside an animal. You know, and I don't mean that in the small A. I mean that in the big A, in the yeah, sense we that species. we're a species, we're an animal, and we play by all the rules. That you know, I, I, it's interesting because I see farmers and I see other people who treat their animals a certain way, and they know that if they feed the animal certain high-value produce, or you know, that the animal will do very well. And then I see those exact same people go to McDonald's for their food, and it's like there's definitely a disconnect going on in American culture today and internationally as well, yes, yes. between worldwide, worldwide. And and so I think what comes out of this conversation is making that disconnect or ignoring that disconnect. Is a choice. It's a choice. And, and fundamental choice. Yeah, a fundamental choice. And to and to be on stage without without admitting that our body is a part of our performance is a choice. And we need to make that choice, but not in the negative, in the positive. In the positive. And, and Antonio, I really want to thank you for coming on my program. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Brother Wolf. All right. All right. Thank you. This guest has written a post for the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved.